0: I'm Casey Finey, and this is Fast Company's Creative Conversation, a podcast where we tap into some of the most creative minds in film, TV, music, and beyond. It goes without saying that David Sedaris is the foremost humorist of our time. Even though he's far too self-effacing to ever admit such a thing, I'm pretty sure his millions of devoted fans would agree with me. Books like Naked, Let's Explore Diabetes with Owls, or his latest collection, Calypso, showcase his perfected craft of spinning his everyday life into essays that make us laugh or break our hearts or both. But David's skill as a writer is only half of his creative equation. What's truly special about David is his keen awareness of the world around him. If there's one thing we can all learn from him, it's that creative inspiration can take many forms even as a slice of pizza on a driveway in Wisconsin, which we'll get to in a moment. David, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks, Casey, for having me.
0: With your newest book, Calypso, it's, first of all, it's amazing. I mean, the the, the stories that you chose are some of my favorites, because some of them I've read in The New Yorker before, and you know, some of them I've had the pleasure of reading for the first time. And so with this particular collection of stories, what were you looking to capture? Like, what was the theme? What was the mood that you wanted to convey with this amalgamation of stories?
1: Well, I turned the book in late in February. And then the day that I turned it in, I started writing new things, right? So I guess you could say I have three essays for a new book. But I don't, I never think like of a common theme. I never think of I just kind of write and then at the end of like 3 or 4 years I have a pile that's big enough to be a book and and then it turns into a book. So I don't I don't know that I have consciously have any themes. I mean somebody pointed out yesterday that turtles appear quite often in the book and I <laughs> I hadn't even realized that. I mean I know people who do sit down and think consciously about themes for a book or, you know, if I were to write a whole book about travel, say, I just feel like it would be forced in a way because I would think, you know, like I'm going to Cambodia uh, in a few months, right? So, and maybe I'll write about Cambodia and maybe I won't, but I I don't want to be boxed in and have to think, lean on the travel aspect of going to Cambodia um, or to think like, Damn it! You know I have to. I have to get something out of Cambodia, because I, I feel like especially when you're writing humor, if you're like p- with people who have like humor columns in the newspaper, right? It's like, what's up with coasters? And it's like, <laughs> well, nothing is up with coasters. You just have a deadline. Right. That's what's up with coasters.
0: And, I mean, is that why you you prefer the essay format as opposed to kind of writing one? just one cohesive story because i mean what what i particularly love is that you just it's just little snippets into your life as opposed to just you know one giant story of one thing so do you find that is there a freedom in that for you just kind of just to have these little snippets of your life that sometimes you're talking about you know your beach house sometimes you're talking about you know your life in england with hugh and so there's just kind of different snapshots is there a freedom in that for you as opposed to just writing a big chunk of one story?
1: Well, I go on uh, lecture tours quite often, right? Every fall and every spring. So I just finished one the day before yesterday. So I went to 40, 42 cities in 44 days, something like that, right? So the thing about, the, my problem with writing a whole book is I wouldn't read something to an audience that takes an hour to read, right. because if you're in the audience and you're not into it, you're just stuck there for an hour. So I would rather read four things over the course of an hour, and then you kind of know, well, gee, the first three things were 15 minutes, so I bet this next one's going to be 15 <laughs> minutes as well. So then it just mixes it up a bit. So part of it is because of is that like I'm always I'm always thinking of the next lecture tour because. Let's say I was in Boulder Mm -hmm. a week ago, right? Well, people, a lot of people drive from – they're going to drive from Denver to Boulder. So I I always make a list of what I read in what city so I don't want to repeat myself. But then I can't read the stuff I read in Denver because maybe some people are going to drive from Denver to Boulder. And my fear is that people are going to think like, hasn't he done anything since (laughs) the last time I saw him? So I'm constantly trying to write – New things, but I think too because when you when you write about your life, then the 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 good thing is you don't have to reintroduce yourself with every essay. You don't have to reintroduce your sister Lisa. People know who your sister Lisa is, so you can just get into the story, settle in, and by the second paragraph you're just into it. Then. That that's when having written about your life for so many years comes in handy.
0: Of course. You mentioned your lecture tours, which, as I understand, is is a pretty important part of your creative process in the sense that you have the opportunity to read a story and test the audience reaction, maybe your own reaction to see like what's landing, what's not, and you rewrite accordingly. And so what to you is the most challenging part of shaping a story into what you want it to be, like when you go into the rewriting process for an essay what is the most challenging part of that for you
1: well i make notes when i read out loud right so of course i put a big check mark next to everything that gets a big laugh right sometimes something doesn't get a laugh and i think okay i know that's funny so (laughs) are they confused or did i uh, am i not being clear it's not you it's them
0: you're like i know this is funny
1: (laughs) well that does happen sometimes people step forward and saying i think people aren't laughing because of this and this and So sometimes I'm just puzzled by something. Sometimes you feel the audience getting snagged on something. And I feel like audiences snag on race Mm. uh, when you mention anything like with another culture, right? Right. Like I mentioned uh, uh, a dress that a Mexican baby would wear. Right, mm-hmm. and the audience is like, they're just staying there. I've moved on, but they're still there thinking, "Is that racist? Can you say that? Can you say address a Mexican baby?" So I make note of that, and I think it'd be different in a book, right? Because right. sometimes a listener snags on something that a reader won't necessarily snag on. Uh, sometimes I feel really embarrassed. I think, like, wow, I can't believe I tried to pass it off as an ending, <sighs> and the way I tried to pass it off as an ending you know just that you hear that on NPR all the time (laughs) like they just kind of slow down so you think ooh that must be the ending (laughs) or it's embarrassing when the audience doesn't applaud at the end because they don't know it's over with and you have to tamp your papers together right
0: that's, I mean, as an audience member, I mean, I've, I have not done public speaking engagements like you, but that is something that I always, I'm, I'm always hesitant. I'm like, do I clap now or not? Right. It's like, you know, sometimes when you go to a jazz performance and like people clap after solos and it's like some people do, mm. some people don't. But yes, as an audience member, <laughs> it is kind of nerve wracking to know when to clap or not. Are you done? Is this the end? But, but I'd like for people to
1: know it's the end right? and to say, wow, that felt like an ending. And I'd actually like for them to go to make that little noise at the end of, a, of an essay. And then sometimes I think, wow, that was really boring. That whole passage, meanly boring. Or if I've read something 30 times, then I think that's not worth say, saying. Mm. That wasn't worth the breath that it took to read those four sentences, so I'm going to cut them out.
0: Right. And, you know, kind of going back to what you, you, what you kind of touched on about people snagging on something like race, as a humorist i mean how do you kind of navigate writing honestly in a way in such a pc focused world because i think the bit about um the uh, baby the mexican baby in the dress or whatever that's something that that's not the only incident i think like there was a about you talking about you don't like chinese food mm-hmm. and you know as people just kind of attach their own issues or whatever they have to to, to certain things that you write when it's not even about that at all. It's not racist, and not anything, but people were just so sensitive sometimes when it comes to certain topics that are, you know, quote unquote, hot buttons. So when do you know when to stick to your guns? When do you know when to kind of give a little bit and be like, okay, that might not be in the best taste. Like, how do you figure that out?
1: Well, I don't want to be closed. You know, like I don't want to be, just close myself off and say, I'm not going to listen to what you have to say, Right. Like I read something, I had something in the New Yorker about going to the Anne Frank House, and I had been looking for apartments at the same time. And 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 when you look, or you're looking at real estate, then you you think, oh, I'd move the kitchen here, and I think I'd divide that into two bedrooms. And then I went to the Anne Frank House, and I just treated it like real estate, and I was thinking, I'll take it, you know, because it's a lot of people. You know, it has a gloomy reputation, but it's right. a triplex apartment in the middle of Amsterdam, and it's sunny and. You know, I mean, if you have the windows blacked out with curtains, you know, it's going to be a kind of a grim place. But, right. I mean, in, right now, it, I'd give anything for that apartment. And so I wrote about it in The New Yorker and I recorded it for the BBC and I record in front of a live audience. And this young couple came up and they'd say, um, we were we were deeply offended by that story. Who did we talk to? And I said, we well, can talk to anybody here. but." I got to tell you, no, nobody really cares. I said <laughs> that story. If that story was anti-Semitic, believe me, it would not have been in the New Yorker. Right? You know, it would not have been published there. And maybe would, were they heard that I was being disrespectful when I read the Primo Levi quote at the end? But I don't know how they heard that.
0: But anyway, I don't even think it's necessarily an issue of someone not getting your humor because some of these things are just you are observing things. It's your job as a writer to observe and to and to write about it and in all of the books and essays that i've read from you i've never found anything offensive and i just think it's interesting how people can just pull one thing out and just be like i am so hurt by this when it's like are you
1: are you really well that's what i guess i mean because you you can't even you can't even guess anymore what right. it might be i don't know i'm not i don't have a zero tolerance policy towards any words right but you can't even guess anymore what exactly. people will be bothered by and I I don't know I mean I guess I feel like sometimes I do wonder like you know did you come in here tonight determined to be offended by something and this is what we settled on yeah. or people will say I can't believe the things you say on stage and I think what did I say <laughs> like, I don't even <laughs> I don't even see it
0: Right, and so you know I think what so many people love about your stories, and myself included, is your ability to take an ordinary day or event in your life and find something profound or comical or touching about it. And for someone who avidly records his life, how do you decide what's just minutiae versus minutia worth telling? What is that kind of filter for you to, to figure out, okay, I have all of these events that seem so mundane, but... This one in particular is something that I think connects with me and it may connect with other people.
1: Well, I think sometimes your life just feels like a story. Mm-hmm. A number of years ago, I bought a, a taxidermy owl in mm-hmm. London from my boyfriend Hugh. And so I went to this taxidermy store and events unfolded and it was a story
0: as it would happen in a taxidermy store. I mean it's
1: <laughs> well, this guy started pulling things out and he's like human things, human parts to show me. And and I don't know that he would have done it to somebody, but it's like he looked into my soul and said, I know what you want. <laughs> <laughs> and and it had a beginning, a middle and end. And if I'd pulled my notebook out, mm-hmm. it would have ended. Right. Right? If I had asked questions like, Where did you get this? Uh, it would have ended. So you when when something like that happens, I, I so often think of like surfers, you know, and you see them riding this wave and mm-hmm. you don't want it to end, right? right. Like I wrote an essay years ago. This guy on the metro in Paris thought I was a pickpocket. And people have said, why didn't you tell him you weren't? And, and I said, I didn't want the story to end. You know, I mean, I heard him talking about me because he thought I was French and I didn't speak English. So he's saying horrible things about me to his friend. And I'm just right there listening to it. But I'm not going to end it. But then sometimes little things happen. It's just a vignette that's not a story, and it would be wrong to try to make it one. It's big be padding, you know, to make it a story. But sometimes you can stitch this vignette to this one to this one. Um, I was just asked to write about walking in various cities in the world. Yeah. A lot of assignments I, I turned down, but that seems pretty easy to me because I can stitch. Like, I remember I was taking a walk in Wausau, Wisconsin, uh, years ago and in a suburban neighborhood, and I saw a slice of pizza lying face down in somebody's driveway. And it was just so moving to me for some reason. And this would be an opportunity to mention that slice of pizza that for years I've been haunted by and I've been thinking about
0: because you think, what, what is the story? What is the begin? What was the beginning and what was the end of that slice of pizza just sitting in somebody's driveway? That's wonderfully random, like, right? <laughs> and so, I mean, you obviously have all of these, all of these kind of moments that happen that you know may that may not happen to you know other people. I feel like you you in particular have this life that is just. A series of insane events, which are just very interesting to read about. And so I know that you mentioned before that sometimes when something happens, you may not feel the compulsion to write about it right away. Like you need to kind of get some distance from the actual, from the event to just really kind of feel like you can write about it in a satisfactory way. So is there an example of a story where you it something happened and you're like you know what i'm going to put this on ice i'm just i know i want to write about it at some time it's just it's just not the right time
1: well there was an essay in the in the book called why aren't you laughing and it was about my mother's drinking and i tried to write about that when i was younger and i just didn't have the level of understanding that i needed i needed to be the age my mother was when she died in order to write that mm-hmm. essay um And again, I had tried, but it just didn't feel like um, I I was just missing something. And and I needed to get exactly this distance away from it. And sometimes you feel like that like you're walking and then you're uh, out of the city limits and you're um, in an unincorporated area and you know it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <That's> <laughs> how's that um, yeah and and then there, there was a, like a story that I, I was working on for this tour that I just ended about going to a firing range with my older sister and mm. I started it in 2012 turned back to it in 2015 and then uh, Parkland, Florida wrote the ending for me mm. you know? yeah. and so sometimes because uh, it was a conversation I had with my sister Lisa after the shootings in Parkland Florida so sometimes his you know a current event can help write the ending of a story but sometimes you can just turn around like the bind the owl 10 minutes later I'm writing about it but it's not it wasn't an emotional experience in any way it wasn't I didn't need I didn't need to make sense of it I see. right In a way. I just needed to, because it was funny and it was bizarre. Right. And so all I needed to do was uh, get it down on paper.
0: I feel like with a lot of writers, you know, sitting down and actually doing the work is an act of discipline, but you've said before that with you it's more of a compulsion and there's certainly a few other compulsive behaviors that you talk about in calypso whether it's you know your fitbit you're kind of becoming a slave to your fitbit or kind of going on these manic shopping sprees in tokyo <laughs> and so what would you say is at the root of that compulsion particularly when it comes to writing like what about keeping a diary and keeping all these notes is so necessary for you. Like, what's at the well, root? Well, I started
1: of that keeping a diary when I was twenty, mm-hmm. and I started one day. And if you told me the day before, if you'd said you're going to start keeping a diary tomorrow, I would say, "No, I'm not." And I did have done it every day since then, and it's just. I, again, I don't know whether one another word for it is a compulsion. Nine times out of ten, what I'm putting down, isn't terribly interesting. But that doesn't bother me. It doesn't need to be interesting. It does if you publish it, but, I mean, if you're just writing in your diary every day. I don't like to write, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, because that bores even me. But I was always, like, very compulsive, like, as a you know, even as a child. But it was, like, more destructive. And so I guess as I've gotten older, I've thought, okay, how can I channel it? And if I'm going to be obsessive, why don't I obsess about uh, writing, and why don't I obsess about walking, and why don't I obsess about picking up trash? And my obsessions pretty much control my all my adult behavior, right. and my life, and my, you know, it means you can't have, you know, if you need to walk 18 miles a day, you're not going to have many friends, you know, unless they want to come with you, but then you have audio books to listen to, and so... You know what? I have friends yeah. <laughs> who walk with me, who listen to their own audiobooks. Right. And we are together, but we're
0: alone in our, right. in our little <laughs> worlds. And so, you know, knowing that you are, in some respects, like mining your day-to-day life for material, has that Im- impacted how you live or view your life? Do you find yourself thinking like, oh, well, maybe I should get out and do something just to, just to find something to write about?
1: Well, I try to say yes, Mm -hmm. you know. I mean, if you—that's half of it, right? That right there is just saying yes. A woman says, "Can I cut that tumor out of you?" I was just about to say,
0: "You say yes, you can cut that tumor out." Can I get a super discounted surgery for someone to cut a tumor out, so I can feed it to a turtle.
1: But I, but I think also, I think also, it's the level of control you have over your life, right? Mm. So I never learned to drive a car. So I'm on the bus or I'm on the tube or someone's driving me. And if you're on the bus or on the tube, you're going to see things, right? right? I know there are people who have it in their contract or that the driver's not allowed to talk to them. Like when they go on a book tour, a lecture tour. And uh, I was horrified once. I was going somewhere and I asked the driver a few questions. He said, I'm sorry. He said... I have it in my notes, and I'm not allowed to talk to you. And I said, "What?" And I called my agent later, and he said, "Well, you know you've been really t- tired lately, and you had been t- you know you told me that somebody told you this long, boring story a couple of days ago. I said, N- "No, no, you can't legislate that. Like I've heard such amazing stories from drivers. I don't want to and you know, so sometimes somebody could just be really boring, or but even that, you can write about if you want to. I don't want to cut myself off like that so and again because i don't have that much control of my life i'm that always gives me something
0: i feel like at this point in your career you are easily the preeminent humorist of our time and i hope that you know that and i hope that you accept that but i imagine that that comes at a very high level of expectations that i would imagine could be crippling at times and so How do you deal with people's expectations? Like when Calypso's coming out, like what's going through your mind as you know, this is about to be, you know, released to the world and people have these very high expectations of you.
1: Well, I think especially when you're younger, like when I look at books that I wrote, Mm -hmm. early books that I wrote, I see somebody who's trying too hard, who's thinking, I got to get a laugh in every sentence. And I just think when I look at those books, I just think I say to my younger self, like, calm down. (laughs) But then I think when you prove that you can get laughs, then you can say, all right, now what happens if I, if I let that go for a while? And I don't know how an audience feels. Like I don't know if an audience thinks like, wait a minute, that was supposed to be funny. Why am I so sad now? <laughs> but that's one of the reasons that I read, I end every evening by reading things from my diary. Mm. And the stuff that I read from my diary, it all ends with a laugh, it can kind of cover up if they weren't laughing earlier. All they have the memory of is laughing. Mm. But, I don't, you know, sometimes I'm backstage and I'm being introduced and somebody will say, get ready to laugh, and I'm like, you're killing me. <laughs> you're killing me. I mean, I try not to let that stop me. You know, if I think, okay, people came here tonight or people are buying the book, and are they going to say, I only laughed out loud three times, so it wasn't worth it. Right. I paid twenty six dollars to laugh three times. I suppose, but
0: <laughs> and you know that's. I feel like when you read other people's work, other authors' work, from the vantage point of being such an accomplished author yourself, like what is it that you're looking for?
1: Gosh, I guess I'm looking to be stopped by writing. Mm-hmm. I, I I love it when I'm reading somebody, and then when I was going through my old diaries for the diary book that came out. There were pages and pages and pages of other people's books that I would just transcribe in my diary mm. because I wanted my fingers to know what excellence felt like. Right. And and it was just... There are things I, I have in my head memorized, pages, whole pages and endings from different short stories that I've read over the years that I can call forth when I'm walking and then the hairs on my arms can get chills and I think... I. And it just comforts me, in a way. You're know, like I can't necessarily write like those people. Right. And I think when you're younger, you think you know you you begin by imitating other people. Mm-hmm. The, when I, the very first short story I wrote, the school, my, I went to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and they gave me money to have it turned into a little booklet, right? right? And I ran into my teacher years later. And he said it was such a funny parody of uh, Raymond Carver's story, a spot-on parody. And it's like oh, no. I wasn't <laughs> to be. A
0: parody. <laughs> oh, that's like a shot at the ego, but also a compliment at the same time. Uh, it's like, <laughs> do you just, did you just go with it? Like, yeah, that was <laughs> you got it. Thank you so much for understanding my humor. Actually, I did. Yeah, <laughs> of
1: course. <laughs> But I think as you get older, you think, okay, that person has – that's amazing what that person can do. And it's amazing what that person can do. And I'm going to be here to appreciate that person for the rest of my life. And in the meantime, this is who I am and this is what I do. Not that you can't try to stretch and grow, Mm -hmm. but you kind of accept your place, I suppose.
0: There was an interview a while ago uh, where you mentioned that you haven't read a review of your book since, I think, like 2000. And so is that something that you still kind of avoid? Like when people, when people are reviewing your book or talking about your book, do you still avoid it and why?
1: You know that New York Times has that buy the book column, mm-hmm. right? Whenever anybody mentions me, I write them. Mm. I write them a thank you letter and I say, that was so kind of you right. to mention me. Um, but I guess I just get puzzled by them. Like, and I don't. I, I get more puzzled when people say good things, or they say he does this and this, and then I think, oh, is that what I should do? Is sh- should I do more of that? Because I just want to please everybody. I just want right. to please people. If someone walks out of a show, mm-hmm. I say, oh, it's a doctor on call, you know, right. and then, and he, and then five people walk out, and I think. Oh, it was a school bus accident, you know? <laughs> a school bus at you know, 10 o'clock at night right. taking all those children home from the game. Um, I, I, I know people who engage in social media who almost seem energized by the people who don't like them and will argue with those people. I can't imagine engaging with people right. like that again i just I, I guess i just get puzzled by the good ones and then hurt by the bad ones like if i mean i know i didn't read it but when you have a bad review in the new york times like people love to tell you about it of course they love <laughs> to tell you about it people you haven't heard from in years like they never <laughs> They didn't call when you got the good review in the New York why? Times. Because why would they? Right. But yeah. then you get the bad one. I just think that's awful what Janet Maslin said about you. And I said, you know, that, that's okay. I don't really need to hear it. But I mean to call you. I mean to even hate the title of your book. To go into great detail about that. And I say, no, I don't. I, but, she, God, she really has it out for you. She really seems to hate you. And, and you think, how many times do I have to tell you, like, this hurts me. And I don't right. want to hear this.
0: But even now at this point in your career, like when you, you, because you are so established and I would understand someone feeling that way if they were just a new writer, like a fresh writer and to get a negative review could just be really damaging to that person's ego. But you have just a list of books that have just been bestsellers and people have, you know, told you how much regular people have said, like, this means so much to me. You know, the, the critics have said the same thing. And so, even at this point in your career, do you still feel that way? Like, oh, I sure. can't. Why is that?
1: Uh, I mean, every day you're proving yourself all over again. Like, mm-hmm. tomorrow, when I get up to write, that none of every, everything that came before it, none of that matters. Right. Like, every day, every tour that I go on, like, um, is a brand new. I'm starting over from scratch. I guess mm-hmm. that's a way that I feel about it but it it changes a little bit when you get older mm-hmm. you know so i'm in an age now where people call me sir and when people call you sir you think okay i'm old you know i mean i got to be old and then you start getting awards when you're sir
0: right you
1: know so i just reached the point now where i'm starting to get awards right and then you think okay is that like kind of you're being going to be ushered out the door
0: mhm i mean kind of looking you know with with calypso and kind of looking Four to you know other books that I'm sure you're gonna write, where do you see where do you see your career headed? I mean is it just more of the same, or is there anything that you feel like you know what I want to explore i z i
1: i I gotta say like what I wanted from the very beginning, and I was very fortunate you now I've just been a lucky person, right, so Ira Glass heard me, and he put me on the radio, and then I'd been doing stuff. You know, little, I'd been doing readings and I'd been writing every day, but when he put me on the radio, opportunity knocked, Mm -hmm. right? And it was opportunity that never occurred to me. Like, do you want to write for this TV show? Do you want to, will you be the voiceover in this commercial? Will you do? And to be somebody who had no money and all of a sudden is getting all these offers. Fortunately, I was old enough, I I think I was like 35 or something, that I was like, no that's actually not what I want and that's actually not. I want to write books and I want to write for The New Yorker and then that's all I ever wanted and so I have exactly what I wanted so I don't, I haven't seen that other thing I mean I wrote plays and and it was a beautiful time for me and my sister and and our friends that we would put these shows on plays on and stuff but I can't go back to it. It just seemed like the time for that is over. So, I don't know, maybe something will crop up. To my mind, like, I've grown as a writer, so I guess that's what I hope for, is that I would keep doing it. Like, Tobias Wolf, someone I love, right? in very in very subtle ways, like you'll read a Tobias Wolf story and you'll think, "Wow, there are no quotation marks." Mm-hmm. Like people are speaking, but there are no quotation marks, just little things that he does that he becomes kind of abstract in a way, but he's not abstract that he's writing for graduate students, mm-hmm. and he's not abstract that you're not he's not telling a human story about people that you care about. For him, he's made this leap to a different territory and he's always been somebody who I so deeply admire and somebody who is a model of behavior is a model of writerly behavior mm-hmm. and just gentlemanly behavior and you can't do better
0: I think people would argue that you're the exact same at least I feel that way
1: oh that's <laughs> absolutely I
0: it's just been an absolute pleasure speaking with you because you are ever so much the amazing writer that you think of Tobias Wolfe. I think that of you. So David, I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. This has been Fast Company's creative conversation. Join me in two weeks for the next episode where I dig into the creative partnership of Carly Mensch and Liz Flayhive, the co-creators of Netflix's hit show Glow. In the meantime, make sure to check out the next episode of Fast Company's other podcast, Secrets of the Most Productive People, which drops this coming week. If you're liking what you're hearing so far, make sure to subscribe and tell your friends. Have a good one.